Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Wolford, and this is Trium Connects. Today, we can say with a certain degree of confidence that the major source of delay in tackling major challenges from climate inaction all the way to tax evasion, to drug pricing, uh, they're all situation challenges where we're not making any progress because basically companies are pushing back. But even those companies, the most enlightened ones, they're still not accountable for their political activity, meaning they're still playing a double game. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Trium Connects. Over the past 10 to 20 years, we have seen the rise and rise of populist and nationalist movements and political parties and democracies across the world. And really, this is in part reflects a growing dissatisfaction with the state of our democratic institutions. And we know this. I mean, many people just don't believe that democracy delivers for them anymore. A recent study by the Pew Foundation found that this dissatisfaction is leading to real desire for the changes in the system. In fact, a median of 56%, 56% across 17 advanced economies surveyed in 2021 believe that their political system needs major changes to be complete or to be completely reformed. In the U.S., for example, this number is 85%. In Spain, it is 86%. And in France, it is 73%. This level of dissatisfaction is really dangerous for democracies. My guest for this episode is Professor Alberto Alemano. Alberto argues that for too long, politicians have relied on a a kind of argument that's centered around this idea of there is no alternative or a Tina explanation. And this idea that there is no alternative has been used as a type of an excuse for failures that we see in our democratic systems. And, and when you think about it, it's just not very compelling. You, you get dissatisfaction and you say, we're dissatisfied. And, then, and the response is, well, sorry, there's no alternative. When you think about it, these type of explanations are just not nearly as compelling as narratives using populist appeals to kind of our worst nationalistic impulses. Now, rather, Alberto believes that what we need to do is embrace structural reforms based on innovations to our democratic system. And one source of the disillusionment that's driving this problem is a general feeling among populations that the system is fixed and that the state has been kind of captured by corporate interest, which makes implementing needed changes difficult, if not impossible, to do. In our conversation here, Alberto uh, and I talk about how empowering citizens to lobby themselves could be a key in making our system more responsive by kind of evening the playing field. The argument is is that now we have only kind of one side represented in the lobbying process, and this one side is the narrow self-interest of large, large corporations, for the large part. So Alberto argues that we need to increase encourage and empower citizens themselves to lobby their own government. The second big idea that Alberto and I discuss, which I think in many ways is the more interesting one, is that he calls for adding a P to our ESG standards we currently use to look at companies' impact on their environment that they they operate in. And this P would be an explicit reporting 
on all of their political activities, including what sorts of policies they favor and oppose. Alberto argues that demand for this type of information is already increasing in many investment circles, and that before long, companies will be forced to do this for their own narrow self-interest. Alberto has spent a career looking at these ways to improve the, the functioning of our democracy. He is the Jean Monnet Professor of European Union Law and Policy at HEC in Paris, and his research has been centered on how the law may be used to improve people's lives, in particular through the adoption of power-shifting reforms countering social, health, economic, and political disparities of access within our society, hence this idea of citizen lobbying. This is reflected in one of his latest books entitled Lobbying for Change, Find Your Voice to Create a Better Society. Alberto is a graduate of Harvard Law School, the College of Europe, and holds a PhD in international law and economics from Bocconi University. He has also pioneered innovative forms of academic and policy engagement. Originally via the EU Public Interest Clinic, he established with NYU School of Law and his civic startup, which he is a founder of, called The Good Lobby. So Alberto is one of these rare combinations of an extremely successful academic as well as an engaged, active social entrepreneur. The brilliance of his ideas are matched by the passion with which he argues for them. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you will as well. And with no further ado, I bring you my conversation with Alberto Alemano. Alberto Alemano, welcome to Triumph Connects. Thank you for having me. Hello, everyone. It's great having you. We're going to jump right into it because I think that you have such an interesting life that uh, I'm going to be using up all of our time uh, talking about all of the interesting things that you're doing. And, and to, to, to kind of frame that or set that up, I thought just starting at a very broadly, um, we've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, a big rise in kind of populist politicians and uh, a consummate decline in the kind of belief or faith in experts. And this is tied to this kind of growing global authoritarian rise, I would say, through time. And now we have this kind of timely discussion because of the election in France, for example. And one big piece of this explanation that you've argued for is that is this is somewhat of a consequence, particularly in, perhaps in the European context, of a lack of democratic accountability or, or kind of disenfranchisement or a lack of kind of involvement at the European level. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see those two things connect, uh, how they're connected, how this kind of democratic deficits, so to speak, in, is connected to the, perhaps the rise of populism? Well, th there is no doubt uh, that there is a link between the two. Um, the emergence of populist parties and claims of full representation of everybody, certainly uh, an answer to, or at least a reaction to the decline in the faith in our institution, in the authority of knowledge. In a way, uh, technocracy has been overdoing a little bit uh, by claiming that we live in a Tina world. There is no alternative. And this Tina world is something that can work uh, during an emergency, as we've been seeing 
during the pandemic crisis, but it cannot be the status quo. And it has been the default for at least the last 20 years in Europe. And as a reaction of that, we can see across liberal democracy, certainly in the US, certainly in a variety of European countries and possibly beyond this kind of reaction of people saying, well, we live in a democracy. Well, we should also be heard beyond elections. It should not all be about election day, in particular because approximately 50% of the people don't show up, don't actually vote. So we need to refresh, rejuvenate representative democracy and try to find ways to reconnect our elected representatives with citizens in the space existing be between election. I think this is the interesting space in which we could potentially develop a few democratic innovations that might act as antidotes uh, to the populist surge. Because at the end of the day, the populists, when they got into government, uh, think about Bolsonaro in Brazil, think about Viktor Orban in, in, in Hungary, they didn't necessarily deliver on their promises. So populism is not capable of gaining what we call output legitimacy. They're not able to get any kind of uh, consensus once they are elected by using the usual mean of policy delivery. They need to leverage on other tools, which are basically eroding the rule of law, uh, reducing the judicial independence, reducing uh, the freedom of expression through media. And this is a bit what, what is happening. And you're right, France somehow epitomizes this tension between the need for technocracy in order to survive in the system we have created. So the Macron vote is presented as a Tina. But on the other hand, we see legitimate claims from Mélenchon, from his party, and also from many voters of Marine Le Pen saying, no, there is no Tina. There are other models. There are other alternatives to, to, to live together and to renew our social contract. Yeah, that's it's fascinating because I, I love this term, Tina. There is no alternative. This is this is hardly a rallying cry to inspire people to, to to engage in civil activities. You know, you tell them, yes, you're unhappy, but look, there's no alternative. That's not very inspiring. If you can give them an alternative narrative that plays on national identi identity, um, that even if it doesn't deliver, as you say, it it is much more kind of connecting it creates a connective tissue among citizens citizenry if, if 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 that if that is harmonizes with their their previous views that that something like look there's no alternative i know it's bad but what are you going to do that's that just doesn't seem very inspiring and and you that's that's i think a really interesting explanation of why these other groups have have, have grown in power that just have a a better story to tell is, is it did i get that right Absolutely. They, they, at least they have a story. They have a story that is, at least on paper, empowering them. So it's addressing their, their sentiment of powerlessness, which is dominating our society and is making them feel in control. And this is exactly what they don't have, any control in their lives, because the systems, the economic system, the, the social system, the political one are deciding for them in a society which is more and more unequal. We have to remember that we have been witnessing an emergence of economic inequalities. And the other side of the economic inequalities are political inequalities, meaning that socioeconomics really drive political behavior. Those who show up in the election day tend to be more educated uh, than the people who don't show up. Uh, people who are reading the newspapers and trying to get into uh, the public policy loop, trying to understand what are the terms of the debate? Why should we go? Who is gonna pay for the climate transition, the green transition? These kind of people who ask themselves these questions are the epi few. They are not. They are not the many.
no exactly and and it, it's it's a little bit interesting to see now with uh the war in ukraine how potent an alternative story can be of this kind of liberal democratic system to people who haven't experienced it for a while there's almost like an exhaustion through time that if you you it, it the story loses its magic after 30 40 50 years and it all becomes kind of technocratic I don't know, issues that have to be argued uh, about, I don't know, import export laws or something like this. And this, this, this no longer captures what can be an extremely potent story as we see in Ukraine. Absolutely. No, what we have been seeing in Ukraine is a, is a good wake up call for our political leaders, for our societies is really a matter of life and death there. Uh, the kind of political decisions you take, the kind of political, political leaders you, you, you support. Um, I think uh, this uh, Russian invasion is, is a powerful reminder also of the soft power of Europe, meaning the ability of us as Europeans to give our hand to a country and to somehow save it from falling into, into the other side. And I think this is a bit what is, what is in, in question today. Having the country probably split is gonna be ended up being split like Germany was split in two parts for, for several decades, I think we're going to see something similar. And this, at the end of the day, would be a pretty random political decision. I mean, the map would be drawn by a few political leaders. Uh, it would be the outcome of a political compromise uh, handled by very few individuals with no participatory input, uh, neither from the Russian side nor from the Ukrainian or the European one. Um, this is, again, a very powerful reminder of the unprecedented story of European integration, the fact that for the last 70 years, we managed uh, through this pretty magic formula to stay in peace and to grow economically. This was the challenge of our founding fathers back in the 50s, and they clearly uh, succeed in their project. We have to remember that at the end of the Second World War, there were many European uh, projects. Uh, there was this idea of having you know, the European uh, economic operation and development, which is now the OECD. Uh, you had the, the GATT, uh, you had the UNICE, which was this kind of United Nations agency for, for Europe. And then you also had the Council of Europe, uh, which was born in 48. And then we have this European calling steel community. Uh, it is somehow unprecedented that that project, which was so tiny, but certainly more powerful in the idea of supranational authorities, so decision taking by majority countries giving up their power, became the project. Um, it was not a given, but now we see that project getting attraction again because, I mean, the Ukrainians are the only people uh, over the last 70 years who actually have been fighting for Europe. Uh, there are people who are fighting for Europe right now and defending, paradoxically, much more successfully our values, those enshrined in our foundational treaties. And, and, it, and it may be that you only, only really appreciate them when you don't have them. So, I mean, I, I want to come back a little bit to our discussion about you you were saying that we need to engage people between elections, uh, not only give the franchise to more people, make sure that people vote, but it's these inter-election inter engagement that's really important. And the couple main topics I want to talk about today, because this is this is where your work has been really focused on, as far as I can tell, in the last, last few years, is, is this idea of citizen lobbying and also a, a better way of thinking about corporate lobbying. 
um, and and something that you call what I think is a, a great term, democracy footprint. But let's let's start with citizen lobbying. And and what's really interesting here is um, this has taken up a large part of your time these days. I mean, you were a founder or a co-founder of something called the Good Lobby. And can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what it does? Yeah, happy to happy to tell you a bit about uh, about the Good Lobby and the theory of change we have been trying to to push and and promote over the last few years. I think every everything starts from this kind of diagnosis of the society in which we live in this kind of sentiment of growing powerlessness and trying to ask ourselves what can we do, what we can do individually and collectively. How can we react uh, to this uh, Tina story? What what is the contribution? And here there's a bit of a paradox, right? We have never been, um, I would say, uh, um, wealthier. We've never been living longer than today we have never been also in terms of iq intelligent as intelligent as we are today as, as a society so when you look at all um kind of uh life chance indicators we've never been better than today but we have uh, developed this feeling of powerlessness so how can we overcome that and and i think to get there we we certainly need to possibly engage a bit more in our society we need to go beyond our job descriptions uh, we need to figuring out how we can potentially leverage on our expertise, skills in order to contribute beyond our little, uh, let's say, little world. And traditionally, historically, it was all about philanthropy, each of us giving away to charities, some volunteering time. But all of this was kind of lost because the intermediary bodies, the trade unions, the youth associations, and all these kind of uh, bodies that really played um, a role of intermediation between society and the systems, the economic, the social one, the financial system, they kind of disappeared over time. So we live in a very atomized society. And the answer to that is to find in a creative way, uh, different way, better ways to participate. And if you think about it, uh, uh, when, you, when we talk about participation today, the only form uh, to change the system within the system while participating is lobbying. Because lobbying is a constitutionally protected right, is about you, me, talking to our politicians. And this is something we don't do. We no longer do. But this is something that companies have been professionally doing and continue to do by investing more and more resources in order to draw the attention of decision makers, in order to shape policies affecting our life. So the intuition behind the good lobby is that if we allow many more people to step in, and to engage with their decision makers, first of all, by remembering their names. We don't even know the names of our, you know, municipal councillor in the city of Paris and those in the Ile-de-France and those in the uh, French Assembly, in the Senate, and then in the European Parliament. We don't know all these people. But if we make such a step, we try to possibly uh, exercise the same kind of pressure than special interests do exercise every single day. And by mobilizing the same repertoire of tools and techniques that professional corporate lobbyists have been doing, we can win some battles. And I have a lot of stories that I've been collecting in, in my book, uh, Lobbying for Change, uh, Find Your Voice to Create a Better Society, that really tells you that actually lobbying, citizen lobbying can actually make a difference. It can create the kind of accountability which is lacking. It can make our governments more responsive to, to, to people's needs. It can set the agenda uh, for, for political leaders. So it is a pretty winning formula. Uh, we just need to get this a bit more institutionalized 
and to find ways for citizens to get into the system. And it looks very overwhelming, right? Government works in a very Byzantine manner. Uh, it is complex. Uh, it requires time and resources. And that's exactly what we don't have. Okay. And the good lobby helps people with those, with those intricacies, correct? Correct. The good lobby is a movement uh, more than an organization that has been trying to demystify and to democratize lobbying for the many. So through trainings and uh, pro bono services, we allow many more vulnerable groups, minority interest, diffuse interests like public health, environmental groups, climate youth movements to get access to power. So our ultimate mission is to equalize access to power by allowing many more people to um, basically uh, lobby, exercise advocacy, while at the same time, and this is the second part of our mission, while at the same time making much more responsible the way in which corporations do lobby. So we recognize the right to lobby, but we also try to be more responsible in the way in which they exercise their, their they, they mobilize their resources and they get the attention of policymakers. Okay, I definitely want to talk about the the corporate side because it's it, it's fascinating. But but let's stay for a second on the on the individual side. And you know, political scientists for a long time have been looking at lobbying, and and one of the kind of logics that that has been written about a lot is originated with a guy named Mansur Olson. And essentially, what what the argument was is the reason that people don't get involved. Well, well, people get involved in, in certain circumstances, and, and that's when they have concentrated benefits. Um, so they'll lobby the government, let's say, I don't know, let's say you're a, a, an onion farmer, and, so, uh, and, you, and you're part of an onion farmer's association. You're really, really concerned about the regulatory framework around onion farming and the price of onions, et cetera. Uh, but if you're a citizen, any cost that's associated with the increased cost of onions are going to be so small for you that it, it's not worth your time and effort to have a counter onion cartel union. If you, <laughs> this is a ridiculous example, so but but I, I'm just trying to illustrate the point. Where where if I am an onion farmer, I'd be willing to spend a lot of time, a lot of money, join an association who's going to lobby on my behalf, et cetera, et cetera, because. It is just worth it to me, and it is not worth it to the citizenry. So, what this logic, what they, what essentially it says is, what you will expect in a de democratic system with lots of points of access, that through time, constant lobbyist groups that represent a concentrated interest will grow in power um, and be heard by the decision makers, not because people are barred from entering on the other side but just it's not worth their time and effort. And I, I'm wondering, first of all, do you buy that argument? And if, if, that's, if, if, that, if that's true, how, how, do we, how does the good lobby and, and really kind of organizations or movements like this overcome that logic? Mm -hmm. Well, Mankur Olson collective action problem uh, is mandatory reading in all my classes. So that's where, where we start and we, also try to unpack this with, with my students, with executive education participants, with uh, civil society organization and foundations. We work with a lot of philanthropies at the moment. We, we basically try to challenge Manko Olson um, theory by basically saying, well, these are all theory. It's a theory that actually had some uh, 
um, truth and very powerful explanatory explanatory power at the time. Um, we're talking about the 50s, early 60s. But this has been losing a bit of context because nowadays uh, the overall uh, capacities of uh, each of us to, to mobilize, to identify like-minded individuals and to get the attention of a um, media sphere, which is much more atomized, whereby each of us is able to create contents and to launch a campaign is, is very powerful uh, and is somehow questioning at the heart the Mankur Olson assumption, according to which diffuse interests, non-spatial interests are very difficult to mobilize. In other words, think about the crowdfunding phenomenon. Think about the crowdsourcing phenomenon. We see nowadays plenty of apps allowing you to crowdfund for ideas, uh, to uh, crowd uh, uh, projects, uh, campaigns, uh, to collect signatures and mobilize actions towards certain goals, uh, which otherwise uh, 20, 30 years ago without the technological revolution would have not been possible. So there is a a major game changer that I think it occur uh, that somehow enabled people to overcome uh, such a collective action uh, problem. Uh, we see this uh, with Greta Thunberg, uh, who I think epitomizes uh, the attempt at challenging uh, the collective action problem as defined by Mankur Olson. She managed as a matter of few months uh, to raise awareness for the climate inaction uh, in a way which is unprecedented. No other NGO, specialized NGO with huge, you know, multi, multi million budget, annual budget has ever managed to, thanks to a combination of um, very powerful storyline, uh, incredible ideas, basically st to strike, so not to go to school on Friday, and to basically vehiculate this message in, in an incredible way and being supported by a variety of foundation, philanthropies, civil society organizations. So Greta Thunberg really represents why Macro Olson idea is no longer, does no longer hold uh, in, 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 today's, in today's society. At the same time, we need to recognize that it is not easy. Um, it remains not easy to, to mobilize diffuse interests. So the collective action problem remains uh, conceptually uh, a, a challenge, but it's no longer insurmountable uh, as, is, as it used to be. Okay, I mean, I think I think that's a that's a fair counterpoint. I, I we definitely see that technology has, in many areas, in, enabled or empowered grassroots democratic participa participation, and, and I agree. But I also I, I'm a little bit skeptical in the following way that that essentially we we now have a market for attention, right? And everything's trying to get our attention. And if a good story is out there, like a Greta Thunberg, definitely that will get my attention. Um, but we're we're a little bit in a bind. I, I guess there is so much information now, and so many different things that I can be involved in and get information on and participate in, at least at a, at a, at a superficial level online. But maybe you know, uh, it's I think it's less so for local issues. But we'll, we'll say for now, it, it, it's fine. I, at a certain point, I need some sort of expert representative to be able to work on my behalf based on whatever my issues are, because I just simply don't have time. All this stuff is grabbing for my attention. Do I really have time, let's say, in the environmental field to read the 
studies on you know the amount of carbon on the atmosphere and how that affects climate etc cetera, etc cetera. i need somebody to take that responsibility on for me and and uh, i just don't attend enough to that person and, and 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 so what i do is i kind of give over my power whatever that is give over my attention to a representative group and it, it traditionally this has been our representatives in government let's say that it's not traditional i'm giving it over to some ngo or some group and i say okay i i, I will i will go with you but the problem is is we still have this this incentive or at least the problem that we can't attend to these people so much so i i elect someone or i say okay i'm going to follow you and i don't have time to watch them and that opens up space for them to act in ways that may be different than what I want them to do. So in, a, in the classic sense of politician, I, I elect someone who, okay, you're my representative, I'm going to pay you to be the expert to represent my views, and, and more or less I align with your views, but I can't watch what you do all of the time. And because of, and because of that, not because I can't, but because I just don't have the time. And that opens up this space for either corruption or we can put it less harshly kind of maybe um, for narrow passionate constituencies to hijack the system and push it one way or the other and I, i'm wondering if we get citizen lobbying are we replacing one form of kind of expert representation by another are we saying okay instead i'm going to put my faith in this organization but i'm not going to follow what it does and therefore it opens up the same problem or do you think that there is something inherent in this citizen lobbying that uh, avoids that problem? I would say that citizen lobbying, like many other democratic innovations, like uh, participatory budgeting, allowing people to decide how to allocate the budget of a city, like we do in Paris, or uh, citizens' assemblies, allowing people to provide advice uh, to political leaders, are all democratic innovations uh, which are complementary to representative democracy. So they don't necessarily aim at replacing representatives, but they certainly try to get into this market for attention you were defining by enlarging the opportunities for citizens and organizations to engage with decision makers um, instead of letting them in a sort of political vacuum. So over the last 20 years, basically political leaders show up just uh, a few weeks before election day shaking hands, uh, meeting a few people and say, hey, do you renew uh, your trust in me? You give me another mandate or you send me home. Well, we are no longer in that uh, logic because representative democracy, uh, major rationale, the reason why many centuries ago we decided to basically uh, shift away from an autarkic system, a system in which there was an autocrat into a system in which we had people we elect from the bottom up was because these people, as you correctly pointed out, were actually paid to think, read, and take informed decisions. So it's an epistemic monopoly uh, that these people have been claiming over time. And we see now that this rationale no longer holds for the very simple reason that knowledge is shared and uh, the quality of our political representatives is not in average higher than the quality of people working in the private or in the public sector. They're just people who self-select uh, through self-selection. They just manage to get through the ranks of their political parties, they end up in the right uh, spot in the right list and they get elected. And we see this happening, happening across the board. And this basically shows how our representative system has been losing legitimacy, has been losing the same quality that justify its, its existence, the raison d'etre, and is clearly showing the need for 
creating a democratic ecosystem surrounding uh, representation. And that's what we call democratic innovation. And which might sound a bit of an oxymoron, how democracy can be innovated, it has always been the same. But in reality today, we are really pushing uh, for new alternative models of decision-making. And the best example is represented by what we call deliberative systems or mini publics, Convention Climat, the Climate Convention in France, but also the citizens' assemblies that basically push for the right of abortion in Ireland or the same-sex marriage in Ireland. And basically this democratic innovation, the citizens' assembly are used when the political system through our representatives is not able to uh, unblock a political impasse. So in Ireland, nobody wants to basically take a clear stance on the right of abortion. Nobody wanted to take a clear stance on same-sex marriage. So this issue was basically taken away from the political system, the traditional one, and handed to a given number of citizens who are randomly selected. So we are moving away from election uh, towards sortition. So any of us can end up being part of the citizens assembly. But careful, their role is simply to deliberate and discuss about the terms of a debate. Uh, yes, abortion, no abortion. Yes, why? By meeting experts, informing the debate. And after several months of internal deliberation made by citizens who are socioeconomically and sometimes also ideologically representative of the old society, so more representative of our politically elected people, uh, they will provide an opinion, therefore an advice to our elected politicians who will finally decide. So as you can see, there is complementarity. There is a ping pong existing between these two competing claims of representation, right? The people who have been elected said, well, I've been elected by the people. That's why I should take the decision. And the other people, the citizens who have been uh, randomly selected will claim representation because uh, they are socioeconomically, demographically representative of the whole, of the whole society. Um, so these two competing claims sometimes conflict, but they complement one another. And my potentially, based on empirical studies, which have been run by a lot of political sci sciences, lead us to better policies, uh, which are better representative of our uh, interests. So that's a little bit where I see the future of democracy, uh, combining the representative component, we are set to continue electing our representatives, but at the same time, creating participatory opportunities, which will be holding accountable those representatives and making them obliged to listen much more to what is happening, always in the space in between elections. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right. I think that democracy is is in is in need of some innovation, and I think these participatory democratic uh, uh, citizens assemblies are a really good example of this. Uh, and I want to come back, though. This goes way back when, if you look at the writings of the founders of the U.S., etc., they worried a lot about untempered passions in democracy. Right, that if you have too much direct democracy, you're going to you're going to the, you can't really trust the citizenry in certain in certain areas, and you have to have this mediated through some sort of representative structure. And that I wonder if you you ever worry a little bit about whether citizens' assemblies will will create pressures that run that might be democratic but run counter to perhaps what we would think would be good policy so that and and i will i will admit i'll put my cards on the table having been an american and watching the american politics over the last 20 years 
um, I have become a little bit, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, a little bit concerned about some direct democratic system. So let, let me let me tell you what I mean by this. So I sometimes think we have a bit of a bias that we when we think about citizen lobbying and things like this, we have an idea that the type of policies that will be put forward will be part of the long arc of history towards inclusion and uh, human rights, etc. But there's all kinds of examples where you can have, let's say, maybe the death penalty, or as you mentioned, abortion rights or LBGTQ issues, etc. And in these cases, in many parts of the world, effective citizen lobbying by either a majority or a large enough minority could lead very easily to non-inclusive, punitive policies that would run counter to um, what many uh, of, of people think of when they think of the, the benefits of kind of citizen advocacy. So, for example, if we looked at Brexit, again, I lived through the Brexit campaign here in the UK, and there was a lot of very active citizen lobby on the on the part of, you know, in favor of Brexit. Um, so I just wonder, do you think that it, that it, what most people think of when they think of that, you know, is is that kind of Brexit movement, what most people think of when they think about participatory democracy in a kind of EU context? And the, and the broader issue is, is there a danger of opening up a democratic system without some mediation for people's, for what might be a passion, but might not be a policy that the society as a whole wants to adopt? I certainly acknowledge that any democratic innovation, including citizen lobbying or deliberative assemblies, can be used to advance ideas uh, which might not be necessarily mainstream, which might be radical, which might be unconstitutional. But in a way, that's what democracy is about. Democracy is about letting emerge all kinds of ideas so that they can be debated, discussed in a market of idea, which is currently lacking. So in a way, if we want to live in a pluralistic society and democracy is about pluralism, we actually need to uh, proactively create the opportunities for those ideas to emerge in order to be debated, deliberated, and discussed by a variety of actors. What I really see in Europe happening, or what has occurred over the last 20 years, is that we had such an incredible bias towards uh, pan-European discussions about difficult themes, difficult topics. And this is not democratic uh, when you have the entire or the mainstream electoral political parties uh, which are trying to prevent certain uh, arguments from, from happening. When it comes to Brexit, I don't see, I don't read Brexit as a phenomenon that has been driven or originate in citizens' demand. It has been pretty much the outcome of a miscalculation by Mr. Cameron, the then prime minister, who in order to address a clear skeptic uh, component of his own party, which by the way, was not even majoritarian, he was forced or he felt forced to promise a referendum. And this was an incredible mistake that he's still paying a price for today because he basically had to disappear from the political scene, which was then mobilized by UKIP, another political party, Nigel Farage, and which has then be basically sold uh, to many Brits who basically believed that the EU was the major source of all the problems the UK was facing at the time. And by now, you know, after so many years after that vote, uh, we can all realize that, you know, it was not the EU, uh, the major source of problems or trouble 
for the United Kingdom, uh, the UK hasn't necessarily improved uh, its life chances uh, for its people as a result of Brexit, but it actually often the, the, the opposite. So to make a long story short, I would say, let's open the Pandora's box. Democracy is about conflict, it's about debating ideas, and to allow many more people, not only our political leaders, to own those ideas and to promote those ideas. So here on this, I'm quite radical in my interpretation of Europe. I'm quite maximalist in my interpretation of what democracy should, should mean, both in Europe and elsewhere, because I claim that Europe hasn't been enough democratic, not because of a democratic deficit, but probably because of a democratic intelligibility. It's impossible to really understand at what level decisions are taken. So that's an, an extra reason why we need to revamp our political conversations across Europe and to do this across countries. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I, I would say Brexit is a cautionary tale. And just to finish up on Brexit, I think your interpretation is correct. You had a minority position in the country that and I would say that this was democratic in that that there was a lot of people that were unhappy with what they perceived that the EU had become and what British um, membership in that organization meant at that point. But they were able through kind of lobbying efforts to capture a large enough proportion of the conservative party that Cameron then had to deal with them. He did miscalculate thinking that the, the referendum would kill these people off, but it actually then, as you said, it opens the Pandora's box. And the problem with this kind of marketplace of ideas is now that it's mediated through social media that, that um, kind of has a built-in bias towards outrage and polarization that it it created a system where it wasn't the rational kind of marketplace of ideas and seeing what would be best for the country, but rather uh, uh, something fought on identity. And once you have it on identity, then I think that it opens up the space as we began the conversation with these kind of more nationalist populist narratives that can be more powerful than Look, if we leave, if we leave the EU, our GDP is going to go down by two percent, or that you know we're that that just isn't going to be as powerful as this other narrative, and and that other narrative was kind of as you said released by opening the Pandora's box of of through this minority access to power within one uh, one of the political parties. So, um, I mean that I think it's a, a beautiful example, as you said of one of the dangers of opening up that box because it was clearly a democratic pressure that led to the, 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 the referendum. But once that referendum is open, then you have the possibility, it becomes unpredictable. No, no doubt, no doubt. And th that's why I think we need to highlight the distinction between direct democracy, which is basically forcing people to take a stand. Um, do you stay here or you stay there? versus participatory inputs. That's what we have been discussing so far. Citizen lobbying, participatory, citizens assemblies. These are a form of participation, which again are complementary to represent democracy. The final decision will be taken by the political leaders, but they will be held accountable uh, for the position they take vis-a-vis -vis the citizens' demand. So we are kind of addressing uh, the passions uh, that uh, the uh, US founding fathers, the Federalists, uh, when Biden and Federalists were really concerned about, because we still have a filter and that filter is legitimate and it has a, a role to play. So I'm not a big believer of direct democracy. I think it's, it basically leads us to major slippery slope and that's what we saw with Brexit. Um, it's very easy to, to, to promote a referendum, but then 
to make it, it happen in our informational ecosystem today is also very complicated. As we could see, you might remember Steve Bannon, former advisor of President Trump saying, you know, Brexit costs peanuts. It costs three or four million pounds, which is basically a tenth of what it costs to run for Congress in the US. So when you measure this in economic terms, it was pretty easy to make it happen. Uh, and this is a pathology of the informational system in which we live in, but that's where referendum uh, actually can be win uh, or, or, or can be lost. So let's, I mean, one of the areas that we haven't had a problem of participation is in corporate lobby, right? I mean, uh, corporations for all kinds of reasons have for a very long time lobbied uh, the state uh, for different things. And now one of the things that's become common in industry over the last, let's say 10, 15 years, I guess, is uh, kind of trying to, trying to have a calculation of a carbon footprint. And this seems part of a larger movement, I would say, and, and, and I know that you agree because you've talked about it uh, in, other, in other places that we've given stakeholders more and more information about the large impact of a firm's activities, the social impact, the environmental impact. There is investors that are requiring companies to report on these things. The ESG movement is real, it's happening. You interestingly, I think, talk about adding a, a kind of fourth dimension to this ESG rubric, and you talk about a democracy footprint. Can you tell us a bit about this instead of a carbon foot, or in addition to a carbon footprint, what you mean by a democracy footprint? And do you think it's something that should be minimized like we think about a carbon footprint? Yeah, over time, I, I, I became more and more interested in the role that business play in our, in our society, in our democracy. And there's no doubt that the role businesses have been playing over, over, the, over the last few years has been, has been changing because the expectations have changed. So we live in an unprecedented year of public and private scrutiny of corporations, uh, citizens, consumers, employees, investors want to know more about how a corporation is organized, how they source their material, how they provide their services, how they treat their employees. This is absolute, absolute, absolutely unprecedented. And certainly the sustainability movement has been the major privileged space for creating these accountability mechanisms uh, that today are pretty much driven by the private sector. We have third-party certifier, ESG scores, sustainability index, sustainability analytics, they're basically doing nothing else but providing more information uh, to a variety of stakeholders, again, from the consumers all the way to the investors about how a given corporation is actually behaving. And this is inevitably uh, shedding light, not only on the so-called environmental footprint, how a company supply chain is green or is not green, not only on the social footprint, how a company is treating its own employees and to what extent is taking into account of what we call scope three information. So what, what about the employees uh, from suppliers, uh, how they're treated? But there's a third footprint, which is left behind by corporations, which is still not visible today because none of these accountability mechanisms seems to be interested which is the so-called political um, footprint. We can also call it democratic footprint if corporations operate in a democracy. And this is basically what is left behind by the lobbying activities, but also by political donations, uh, philanthropic donations, membership to a trade association, to a lobby group, which is indirectly doing lobbying for those corporations. And well, today, today we can say uh, with a certain degree of confidence that 
the major source of delay in tackling major challenges from climate inaction all the way to tax evasion to drug pricing uh, they're all situation challenges where we're not making any progress because basically companies are pushing back they're pushing back despite the fact they're getting greener despite the fact they're getting more social some of them are even b corporations so there are b corps uh, their mission is not only to maximize shareholder value is also to serve uh, the planet and the employees and all the other stakeholders but even those companies the most enlightened ones they're still not accountable for their political activity meaning they're still playing a double game and here the best example i can provide is what we call decoupling a company which is basically uh, selling itself as very green uh, pushing for stricter uh, standards applied to its own uh, supply chain but then becoming or being a member of a trade association, which it could be the MEDEF in France, it could be the uh, US Chamber of Commerce in the US, it could be uh, Business Europe in Europe, which is basically pushing against those standards. So double game, full inconsistency, which has major reputational uh, damages, which might be material for, for, for the investors. Hence, the very incipient uh, trend across some ESG scores uh, like uh, Moody's, MCSI, Dow Jones Sustainability Index that start asking questions uh, to companies about how they organize their corporate political department, to what extent they are working on a file versus another, how much they're spending. So try to become a bit more granular than what lobbying regulation does. So paradoxically, the market is much more demanding vis-a-vis -vis disclosure uh, of political activities than what the state is through, through lobbying regulation. And this is happening now. And that's what pushed me to work over the last couple of years on the emerging notion of corporate political responsibility, which is the next evolution of the corporate social responsibility. If you want to be socially responsible, uh, you also need to become politically responsible. You need to become more accountable, you need to become more transparent, and you need to become much more responsible in the way in which you exercise your corporate political power. So I think this is just such a fascinating field. One of, one of the things that I think makes it really interesting is for, let's, let's, let's use an easier case, for, for the environmental part of ESG, one can say that and most people, I think almost everyone would agree, less negative environmental impact, good. More negative impact, bad, right? So there's a clear kind of normative agreement about what direction we should be heading. Um, social impact, treating your people well. There's some problem about what it means by treating people well, but we can generally say, you know, if you treat your people well, it's good. If you treat your people badly, it's it's bad. If 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 you're using a supply chain that uses child labor, uh, that's bad. If you're using a supply chain that treats uh, the employees of your suppliers well, it's better. So again, there's a relatively agreed level, a, a direction where we want to go. When it comes to political kind of involvement, let's say everything was completely transparent. So let's say that all lobbying had to be, you know, you had to report it on your, fin on your financials or whatever it was. 
what's a what's the right level there should should we be do you see what i'm saying i don't it then it becomes about it's it's less easy to say how much you should be doing and on what issues you should be pushing because in a sense for example let's say a company you decide you, you a company has a, a a religious founder so so a very devout religious founder and the person gives money to uh let's say charities who have a inherently religious socially conservative view right should they should they do that should they not do that is that a good thing for this for this company is it a bad thing if you're sitting on the board would you say stop that would you say more of that uh, the directional the direction becomes more difficult when it's a political involvement so when you say political responsibility i i i recoil just a little bit because i'm not sure what that means is, is do you think that's a fair uh question well the the notion of corporate political responsibility is shaping up and uh, it is very much linked to impact on the policy cycle so is any form of influence you exercise on decision makers to the point that the policy outcome that will emerge out of that lobbying out of that political donation out of that uh, charity or any kind of contribution you're making will be affecting many more people so there is a social cost for political activities because the corporate influence tends to be undue tend to be excessive so the problem is not companies lobbying. I think we should need much more lobbying uh, in our democracies. We have a lot of studies saying that companies where we have more um, uh, countries where you have more lobbying, uh, you actually have a more responsive, a more representative society. So this is good. The problem becomes when uh, the policy process is scarcely populated. So you don't have many interests seated around the table. You just have a few special interests pushing for self-interest without thinking that perhaps your opponents, those who want another policy option to go through, won't be represented. And that's a problem. And this is exactly how I'm trying to operationalize the concept of corporate political responsibility by turning it into a to-do list, a sort of checklist, questions you should ask yourself as a corporation. So do I have a lobbying code telling me what I should do, what I should not do when it comes to how do I engage with, politi with political leaders? Obviously, you cannot engage into corruption and everything you do should be transparent and therefore accountable. So everybody should be able to scrutinize. The only fact of doing this will lead companies to reassess their political engagement. They should ask themselves, how do, I, how do we show up in the political space? Are we just pushing for our self-interest or are we trying to align our shared interest with societal interest? I mean, Michael Porter's shared value project, shared value idea could also work there. So if I manage to advance the interest of my company in a way which is aligned uh, to uh, societal interest, that basically means stricter emission standards, well, in that case, a good work. The best example now would be Coca-Cola. Sorry if I make a name, but Coca-Cola is a symbol, so I'm going to make a name here. Coca-Cola is trying to appear very green, very sustainable in his own water business, because that's what he's about, but he's not pushing for the, the uh, deposit and return battle system, which is a reality in Germany, but it's not in a reality in any other country. That would be the best policy option for Coca-Cola and for the planet. But they are not pushing for it because economically is not, let's say, the best 
in the short term. In the long term, it would probably be better. So to make a long story short, today there are several observers, including myself, claiming that there is a director duty to align corporate political activity with societal interest, and therefore companies should exercise self-restraint when meeting a politician and pushing for a certain cause. So accountability, transparency, and clearly publishing the policy option you're for and telling this to the world. This won't prevent you from giving to charity, uh, to organizations that are more aligned to your own moral values. This to me is, is not related to the political activities of the company per se. Okay, so I, I get that. And, and that, that, that thank you, it clarifies things. Let's take your Coca-Cola example and let, let's push it just a little bit. So let's say that I, I say, and I think what you're saying is that you just want to guard against hypocrisy, right? You want transparency and kind of an anti-hypocrisy kind of uh, framework. So um, I might say, for example, if I'm Coca-Cola, look, the problem with uh, having returnable bottles is that um, it increases our costs. If it increases our costs, a bunch of people that now enjoy our product will not be able to anymore. And so what we're doing is cutting off the lower part of the pyramid and you're just having our products be enjoyed by rich people. We're committed to having free choice for all people, whatever it might be, right? So again, there's a, there's a problem of deciding what's beneficial for society here. But I, I, wanna, I wanna pick up on a, on a, different, on a different issue that, that seems a, a potential worry if we have everything transparent. Um, and, and I never thought I'd be arguing for lack of transparency, but I, I, don't, I don't think I am. But I, I think one of the unintentional consequences might be a fuel of polarization in society. So um, companies in the past, it, particularly in, in the US, which is what I know about, it may be the same in Europe, I'm not sure. Companies have contributed to the political campaigns of all the people running. And the idea is that they will, that this, this buys them access no matter who wins. So let's just use it as a first past the post system. So there's two people running, let's, let's we'll just call them Republicans and Democrats. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna contribute to both a Republican and a Democratic candidate because then I'm covered. Whoever wins, then I, I, I have some access. If everything is uh, completely open, and in the era where we have already polarization, what will happen is you, you will kind of be forced as a company to kind of create a kind of profile to be matched to a certain sort of consumer. Because if you contribute to everybody, nobody's going to want to do business with you. And if you contribute to one party, you're going to capture them, but you'll lose the other party. So I'm wondering if we push this out, and again, I recognize that I am... Uh, kind of traumatized by the polarization in America. But if we push this out and everyone is completely transparent, you know who they're going to, uh, who they're giving to, that pushes companies to take a political kind of a, a stand on a, on a dichotomous kind of uh, orientation. And then you get things like a conservative airline and a liberal airline. So all the conservative people fly on one airline and all the liberal people fall on another airline. And you get this at, at the consumption level, a further polarization of the society and they live with different products, with different services providers, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do you think that's a legitimate concern or is that kind of just something that, that, we, we, that, is, that is not likely to happen? Well, I think Matt, what you are describing is very close to reality. 
Um, the US is a pretty an, an outlier when it comes to political donations. Uh, money is basically speech. You have companies being the major investors into our, into our democratic system, at least in the US. Without corporations, the political parties would not exist in the US, right? They rely on corporate donations. And this is pretty much pathological. It's an anomaly. No other jurisdiction in the world allows money to play the same kind of role. And this inevitably, even today, led to a situation, um, there's a wonderful ethical sustainability movement, uh, ethical consumption movement in the US, uh, Progressive Shoppers, that tells you in your browser extension whether the company you're buying from is more Democrat or more conservative. That's something you get already today. So it's, it's a reality. So I think we should really make a step back and to realize that we should get the money out of politics as soon as possible. There's no reason why corporations should actually pay politicians in the market of attention. We should really move away from such a system and to equalize access to power by allowing all interests to be represented. And there's no other way. We can do it on a voluntary basis, as I've been trying to describe with the notion of corporate political responsibility, or we could do it in a more mandatory way with legislation. Elizabeth Warren uh, was one of the candidates for the Democratic primaries. She was also my professor many years ago. She basically said, well, we need to tax and new lobby. When a company is investing into the political space more than X amount of its turnover, it should be taxed. Well, the idea was to redistribute the corporate political power to many more interests. It's a radical idea. It's a bit crazy, not easy to implement, but I think she's spot on in saying, hey, we have a problem here. Uh, Larry Lessig, uh, another interesting law professor, uh, try to run in the democratic elections, democratic primaries by saying, I want to be elected because the first thing I'm going to be doing and the only one before stepping back will be to basically through executive order to stop super PAC. So this uh, political action committee that allow corporations to invest into the political system. All provocations that basically show and highlight how how crazy that system has, has become. But on a more political theory level, I would say that Again, we need to ensure pluralism in our society. And the only way to ensure pluralism is to proactively support many more interests to show up. And that's why I'm such a big believer in citizen lobbying. I like this chaos of ideas and projects that are mobilized because this will somehow equalize. Uh, they will offset one another and they will make the political debate much richer than it is today because it could not really get worse. So this is basically the bottom line. It's already bad. And it, I don't see how it could get worse. So we need to try and to flip it in a way to give it a bit more fresh air and to see how we can deliver differently. Now it's biased towards a single, a single kind of view being represented in the lobbying process. So you, you, you've talked about four steps to create responsible corporate lobbying. And, and one we've already talked about is adding this kind of ESG and P for you know the political kind of thing. One, you talk about political due diligence. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Is uh, what what do you mean by uh, carrying out political due diligence? Mm. Well, I think the the actual trend is to internalize as much as many social costs as possible along the supply chain. Uh, that's what companies are supposed to do. The European Union has just proposed. A very interesting due diligence directive uh, that will probably be adopted next year, which will require each individual company uh, 
pretty big in scope uh, to basically run a due diligence on not only human rights, but also environmental and other kind of externality that occur along the supply chain. So there is clearly an attempt at making companies much more responsible, not only for their own impact, but the impact that their suppliers do have. So also upstream of the supply chain. When you apply that logic to the political space, well, you would basically expect a company to only deal and do business with politically responsible companies. So companies who initially on a voluntary basis will be having a lobbying code, uh, will be defining and disclosing all their attempt to influence policymakers. And these will certainly clean up uh, the political supply chain. There are companies like IBM, I make another name, they decided to reassess this political engagement. So they no longer make political donations. And they said, we get out of this and we are still be able to be in business. And I really think that the license to operate for many more corporations in the future will very much depend also on their ability to internalize the social costs created by their undue political power. So unless they do something, they will be judged again, by the consumers, customers, employees, who are a very vocal force, not only in North America, but also beyond that. And then inevitably by the investors who are the real driving force. I mean, the investors are those calling the shots uh, these days. They could even tomorrow say, we're going to be investing only on those politically responsible companies. Larry Fink hasn't said so, but he's not far from saying this yeah. in the next letter to the shareholders. And so, the, and, and this becomes a job for the board then. So, the board has to have oversight on this. So if you were advising a board when to and when not to lobby um, and, or how to do so, I, I, I just want to pick up on something you said earlier that I thought was really interesting. So you, you were saying, if you're in a situation where you know that the other side or other sides, uh, plural, are not being represented, maybe that's not a time to um, try to exert influence. That runs counter to the idea, strategic idea, that that's the very time to exert influence because you're going to have the maximal influence. So again, if if, if Alberto's sitting in the boardroom and, and he's giving uh, advice to the board, what, what do you say in those situations? What ought they do? Hmm. Well, I think that idea of seizing every single opportunity to push for your bottom line, so self-interest, lobbying and corporate power is no longer there. No company can afford this any longer because it will, it, will, it will appear, it will look bad. So reputationally, there is a problem. And that's why companies don't do themselves. They rely on trade associations to do that kind of lobbying, right? And that's where, this is a bit the missing link. That's where the accountability should become growing, should become grow, should become bigger and larger and, and develop further because that's where we see trade association taking this kind of, uh, you know, double stamp. They try to identify minimum common denominator. They push for interest companies cannot afford to push for. And we also see companies leaving trade association nowadays because they don't want to look bad being a member of, of the trade association. But basically, I think a company in a situation like this one should basically do a cost benefit analysis and trying to see how in the mid long term that lobbying will actually benefiting us. And I think there are a lot of companies today who might regret of having pushed to the limit their lobbying ability because this has basically destroyed their market opportunities. It has 
shape the market. I think the best example could be the tobacco industry where companies, you know, tobacco companies always try to get the most out of it. They try to reshape the regulatory landscape for 10, 15 years. And as you might see with alternative devices, so-called smoking quitting devices, e-cigarettes, and now uh, heated tobacco, they're really finding a difficult way forward. Why? Because the public health community is against it. So we all know that these products tend to be safer or at least less cancerogenic or not cancerogenic at all, but they don't find themselves a space into the market because they overdid in the past. Hmm? Tobacco is not the best example because it doesn't necessarily apply by analogy to all of them, but it clearly show a blueprint that you should not be followed if you don't want to get into this. And many agro-food businesses, now they face a similar situation. You know, Coca Red is a bad product. The market shares are going down. People don't red Coca, they don't drink Coca Red any longer. It's like Marlboro Red. They shift, you know, to Coca Light, to Coca Diet, to Coca Zero. And, you know, these mechanisms are, are really, are really happening. They're at play nowadays. So there are a lot of analogies that there can be drawn from tobacco to agro and, and potentially to other sectors in the future and alcohol, which is possibly uh, the Cinderella. <laughs> well, example of, what you're talking about might be during the Trump administration, they tried to uh, lower emission standards uh, for automobiles. And for years, automotive firms were against rising emission standards. And at that point, a coalition of automobile makers lobbied for the government not to drop the emission standards because this would be in their uh, against their long-term interest. And I, I really like this idea of the trade association as kind of like a dirty supplier. So, uh, you know, you can be clean and you can be doing all the right things and then you leave the kind of dirty work to the trade association because you don't want to be associated in the same way, you know, I can be, I can be green, but I'm getting my, my, uh, my component parts from the least green part of the supply chain. So I think, I think that's all fascinating. And, and the final thing, so the four steps, you know, ESG and P, political due diligence, we talked about board oversight is really important. And then you, you talk just a little bit about positive lobbying, and this is, this is kind of the last thing I, I, I'll, I'll talk about before we talk about, you know, your recommendation for a book. But what do you mean by positive li uh, lobbying versus negative lobbying? Well, obviously, uh, we have been implicitly referred to negative lobbying when saying, well, if a company is only pushing for his own bottom line, if he's only going towards his own self-interest, this lobbying is negative. It's really about trying to push back this idea that a company should internalize all these social costs in the final price of a, of a product. So anything else is positive. Any attempt at populating the policy process by allowing many more interests to be seated around the table is positive lobbying. Any attempt at shifting away from the policy option that draws you in the short term the best uh, margins towards a policy option that will give you margins, but it will take a bit more time. There will be a phase out. There will be some cost. This is a form of positive lobbying. You're basically trying to make uh, your, your, your timeline a, a bit longer uh, in order to be aligned to the interest of society. I think any effort of that type make you switch from negative uh, to positive lobbying. Th there are further ideas uh, which might also be um, today tested um, that range from uh, you know, civic time off, allowing your employees to get more involved with civil society organizations, um, teaming up as Patagonia, another name does with NGOs in order to help them to get into the policy process. In all these positive, proactive attempt at making it easier for any other interest to get access to power, 
do also qualify as positive lobbying. Uh, so you can come up with a panoply of positive options uh, for, for corporations to not only look, but also act more responsibly when exercising their political power. Okay, fascinating. Thank you, Alberto. I, I want to respect your time here. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to the Good Lobby. I'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, if you're interested in any of these topics, I'd uh, really highly recommend checking out that organization slash movement. I think it's you're doing fascinating work there, and I think it's it's just really interesting. This whole area of of the next phase, let's say, in ESG, the next phase in social responsibility uh, for uh, for companies and uh, operating in society. Final question, though, we we always ask the guests. Um, you know, we've ha- we've gone through COVID now uh, for a couple of years. Is there a book or a play or a TV show or podcast or anything, fiction, nonfiction, that's helped you get through this time? Would you, would you recommend anything for our listeners? Um, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I read a lot. And um, despite my attempt to read a bit more of literature, which I like, I, I read a lot of nonfiction books. And a book that I found very simple but powerful in its own concept is uh, New Power. You probably know New Power. Uh, by uh, Jeremy Hymans and Harry Timms, subtitle, How Anyone Can Persuade, Mobilize, and Succeed in Our Chaotic Connected Age, is a sort of uh, citizen lobbying for for dummies, uh, in the sense that it really shows uh, how the concept of power has changed. So new power is decentralized, it's not hierarchical, new power belongs to everyone, uh, new power is something that uh, is not owned uh, like a currency, but is uh, basically decentralized like uh, a Bitcoin on a ledger. And today we live in a era of coexistence of new power and old power, we often call dinosaurs. So the question is, how do you navigate between new forms of powers and old forms of power? So this is mandatory reading in my class since, uh, since last year. And we do a lot of exercise, um, very nice one. You could also do this with your friends over dinner. Uh, which companies or brands do you know are new power? And which companies are old power? Uh, which uh, of your companies or magazine or media do you know? So you can also have this kind of categorizations and uh, uh, society game or table game. Sounds, sounds great. Alberto, thank you so much. You've been listening to Triumph Connects a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.